This is the ESG Quick Takes podcast. My name is Isabel, and this podcast is brought to you by ESG Book. Today's episode is about innovations towards a sustainable future from the perspective of a climate tech investor and true energy expert. I'm in New York City at the offices of Energy Impact Partners, or EIP, which is the largest venture capital firm focused on sustainability and the energy transition. EIP invests in technologies critical for the decarbonization of the global economy, and that can be companies with direct emissions reduction impact, as well as technologies that lay the foundation for a faster transformation towards net zero emissions. And we're very glad to have them as one of our investors in ESG Book. With me today is Dr. Peter Foxbenner. He is the Chief Impact Officer for AIP, as well as a Senior Fellow of the Boston University Institute for Global Sustainability. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time. Let's start with your firm. Can you tell a little bit more about AIP? Well, thanks, Isabel. Thanks for having me on the podcast. EIP, I think, is a very interesting and unusual vehicle for climate tech investing. We have seven active funds. We've invested in about 100 companies, and we have roughly $3 billion of assets under management. Uh, But what's unique about it is that we view ourselves not as a passive fund group, but rather as a strategic investor coalition. Our partners include investors include 31 of the largest utilities in the U.S. and Europe and 18 large industrial companies alongside them. As members of our our investment coalition and LPs, they don't just contribute to the fund and then disappear. We engage actively with the members of our investment coalition, meet with them frequently, evaluate companies that that we're going to invest in, and we expect that the companies that we invest in, the climate solutions and new climate tech, are, are going to succeed because we have the expertise of our industrial and utility partners helping us to evaluate those companies and also their ability to deploy those solutions inside their very, very large, significant operations. The utilities I mentioned inside our investor coalition serve two out of every three customers in the United States. And the total capital budget of this coalition is over $65 billion a year. So that's an ability to move new technologies from the drawing board or the startup stage, the pilot stage, all the way through full-scale deployment across very large energy networks and industrial operations. That is the, the special uh, investment strength of the EIP investment model. Interesting. And focusing on you, you started in engineering, have worked in the government, energy consulting and academia, and now you've ended up in DC. Can you describe your path? Well, as you said, Isabel, I, I started out as an electrical and mechanical engineering student at the University of Illinois Urbana wonderful place. I studied engineering because I thought technology was going to be absolutely essential to solving problems like our environmental problems. In those days, the 70s and 80s, not enough people interested in environmental change were studying technology, believe it or not. As I was studying, I came across a quote by founder of Friends of the Earth named David Brower, and he said, engineers may build, but bankers are at the switches. And As I started to look a little further, I realized that he was right. And 
that although technology is very, very important, I finance and economics really were dominant forces in the U.S. economy in terms of what technologies are deployed and what solutions are adopted and they're even very influential on, on policy. I, I got a business school degree and started consulting to utilities and doing lots of policy work. Over many years of doing that and also working with academics and the, the academic institute I founded, I realized a couple of things about changing the energy system. And that is, first of all, the energy system that we have, particularly the power grid, are very deeply interconnected systems where change has to be made comprehensively and thoughtfully, or it doesn't happen. You know, power grids and all of our energy grids, they're, they're absolutely essential to safety and health. They operate 24-7, 365. You can't change them by just pulling out parts of them and dropping in new technologies most of the time. Every part of the system is owned by someone. It's financed by someone. It's paid for by someone. Often those are different someones. It's regulated by a fourth someone. You have to align those stakeholders along with the technology or you don't get change. The changes have to be certified to keep the system moving reliably nowadays with resilience and also to move, of course, towards clean energy and decarbonization. So that requires a more comprehensive view of how you invest in, in those systems, how investment pairs with policy change, operational changes. The other thing I started to realize is that the utilities were thought of as the barrier to progress, kind of the incumbents who are generating all the carbon. Uh, right around 2010, I started to realize that given the size of the investment opportunity and the fact that I really think that decarbonization is an inevitable mandate for all the energy systems. And I think that is now widely recognized, I think, by everyone, including all the nations who've signed the Paris Accord, all but one, and pretty much all of, all of civil society worldwide. That represents a gigantic investment opportunity. Utilities and other folks operating the energy system are really at the center of that transformation. They're not peripheral to it. And they're not going to go away and get replaced by someone else. So in 2010, that was a bit of a radical thesis. It led to me writing book Smart Power and led to me finding the co-founders of Energy Impact Partners who also had this same passion for recognizing that the utilities and other operators of energy system were going to be fundamental to changing the energy system and cleaning it up, but also that it was a huge investment opportunity, not just for them, but for lots of other investors. And that led to us forming EIP where, in fact, we have those very companies as the investors, as they're changing their systems, both energy companies and industrials. And now we have many fi financial investors coming in, wanting to kind of join our coalition and we, and we welcome them in they're recognizing this as a, as a big opportunity. In your latest book, diving deeper into the question of the transformation of energy and how it is a multidisciplinary play of finance, economics and technology, you describe the importance of a big grid as being essential to post-carbon power systems. 
from your perspective as an expert in the energy transition and the future of electric power, what do you see as the role of, let's say, startups, smaller companies versus large utilities in transforming our electricity system? Startups are, you know, really the engines of innovation in our economy and in many economies all over the world. Um, and it's just fantastic to work with the, kind of these young innovators who have great ideas and a real ambition to make a contribution to solving climate change, but they need financing and they really need real world advice and feedback on how utility systems and other energy systems really work. It's not something you can read in a book and learn much about, much as I like my books. Um, there's a lot of learning by doing and the ability to get our innovators in a room with our in LPs, our investors, who operate these systems and have grown them and manage them and add capital increments to them is really just unique and, and irreplaceable. So we look to the, to the innovators to, to bring in really fresh new ideas. And utilities are really ex experts on how to shape those ideas and make them economically feasible, technically feasible, um, acceptable to customers who they know. I think we serve about two out of our utilities in our coalition serve two out of every three customers in the United States. So every, and they interact with them every day. The combination of sort of wisdom from the folks who are operating and keeping the lights on every day and the new ideas in energy is really uh, a unique and important way to move the clean energy transformation forward. And about that, so AIP was designed to accelerate this transformation by investing in innovations that will drive the systemic change. On that, how did this change over the past years? Thematically, we have a very comprehensive view of decarbonization and the transformation that uh, began with the electric power system, but has now moved into decarbonizing fuels uh, because we, uh, as important as we think the electric power grid, and nobody thinks, thinks that more than me who's written four books about it, but as important as it is to a climate solution, it is nowhere near the full solution and decarbonized fuels such as hydrogen and renewable natural gas are, are, are extremely important part of the transformation and part of our comprehensive thematic focus. And the third pillar you might say in that focus triumvirate is the end use technology base itself. Because one of the things that you understand about energy systems is that the system extends all the way into the, the laptop and the microphone that, that you and I are looking at right now. And that's particularly true in an era when the grid is getting smarter, multi-directional, and able to use flexibility tools and communication tools to really optimize itself and lower carbon considerably through what, you know, what we usually call smart grid technologies. So. Our investment thesis goes all the way through into buildings and automobiles and everything else that uses energy. 
So we're investing in all the major decarbonization verticals going from power, which is where we began with companies like Arcadia and Powin, through fuels, where we have electric hydrogen, for example, as one of our investments, and Project Canary. Transport with charging companies like EVMO and Ad Energy. Building technology. Buildings are one end, one, of, one part of the end of the system. And buildings are an incredible efficiency resource, which we shouldn't forget is the largest energy resource we have. That's our efficiency resources. So we've invested in AeroSeal, building seal technology, and several other energy efficiency companies. And, and then our thesis has expanded a little bit. And you asked me how, how our, our investment thesis has evolved. And there are a couple of things beyond those verticals that we're adding. Um, one of them is an expansion of into other sources of energy, as I mentioned, not just other fuels, but we have a fusion investment, Zap Energy, uh, renewable storage, and there's renewable heat storage, Rondo. So that's an that's sort of an extension of our investment view. But we're also looking at materials and circularity, where we've invested in um, Sublime Cement and Boston Metals, but also material circularity companies like uh, Reapley and Grover that are trying to reduce and reuse and recycle materials. Because one of the things I think we've come to see, along with many other climate policy and climate investing, climate tech experts, is that you no longer can completely separate the energy systems and the material flow systems. If you're going to decarbonize the economy, decarbonizing materials is essential. You don't just decarbonize them by electrifying them or even decarbonizing the fuel into them. You want to really reduce material flows if you can and recycle them more. And then the, the final area that, that we're investing in, which is probably most surprising, is uh, ag tech, where we invest in nitricity and small hold and some other companies. It's partly because agriculture is a very big user of electricity and other fuels. Decarbonizing agriculture is and foods is just an incredibly important part of our carbon footprint. So we feel strongly that that fits with our, our mandate, even though most people wouldn't think that. So it's broad. It's broad, but it, but it is focused on decarbonization and particularly on what climate folks would call mit the mitigation broadly through anything that touches energy. Mm. Very interesting. So less so on removal. We do have one CCS company, Carbon America, and we're looking at other at removals. But removal even I would put in mitigation. Right. It's kind of at the far end of mitigation. We're not doing much in adaptation. Yeah. You know, to talk about the other kind of meta space for, for climate investing and a, and a very, very important one. Switching gears, as one of the first VCs to do so, AIP has published a sustainability report for several years, and you are also a strong advocate for transparency and working on standardizing climate impact reporting for VCs and PEs, together with Project Frame. And given that information about PE and VC portfolios and deal-making in general is by definition less public than it is in listed markets, why is transparency so important, in your view, for private markets? Well, I think transparency is, is important for private markets. It has to do with the nature of the objective for carbon and other impact reporting. At EIP, we have two major objectives. 
One of them is to deliver superior returns to our investors, and that's very, very important. Uh, but the second one is to help the clean energy transformation and to increase sustainability more broadly. That second objective is inherently public. <laughs> Climate change and sustainability are the most public of all public goods that we uh, and and goals we all share in um, a safe climate as we're seeing from the impacts of climate change being seen all over the world whether it's 33 million people displaced from the floods in Pakistan 66 rivers drying up in Chongqing China heat waves and floods and problems in Houston and Kentucky and all over Portland, the wildfires in California, all affecting us here in the United States. Investors are unquestionably our most important customers, you might say, here at EIP. We would absolutely want to report on our financial performance as well as our performance in meeting that second objective of sustainability and uh, clean energy transformation. And we do report to them and we engage quite a lot with them. And we really love it when they want to dive deeply into our impact theses and how we're doing measurement. And we do workshops with them. That's very much an important part of what we do. I don't believe we would be satisfying our second objective that is inherently public unless we exposed our analysis and the results of what we're doing towards meeting that objective to a broader group than our investors. There's a couple reasons for that. If, if it is an inherently public objective, if we only report to our investors, it is almost putting the, bur the burden on them to evaluate how well we're doing. And frankly, that's not even the fairest and most accurate way to serve their evaluation of what's inherently a public goal. If we put our reporting out to the public, all of civil society will be able to comment on what we're doing. And those are all the stakeholders involved in that goal who have a stake in that goal. They can comment, they can review it. The investors can, get, can see their feedback. And through that, understand much more broadly and with, frankly, with less work, how we are performing. Our performance can be benchmarked against other funds who also report, which is extremely valuable to our investors. So even to serve our investors best, we think that public disclosure is the right thing to do, but it also serves the goal itself to be transparent and let civil society look at what we're doing. Interesting. And thereby you're setting um, a benchmark for also yourself, I can imagine, over the many years that you've been doing it, comparing your, your performance over time as a company. Absolutely. Um, but we would do that, Isabel, even if we didn't publish it. And, and that's, that's how we work inside EIP. But it adds a lot to be able to engage with uh, all sorts of other stakeholder groups and share our report with them, get comments from them, and also with peer funds. And you mentioned Project Frame, and it's great to be working with them and the Net Zero Venture Capital Alliance that we're trying to form. Transparent reporting, I think, serves all of that. So as a final question, what are the new developments that most excite you? 
there's there's a couple of things that I, I see just from my own personal perspective that I think are interesting and good developments. Um, first of all, I think it was in very much in evidence in COP26 in Glasgow, but I see it continuing strengthening, and I think that's important. That is the recognition that climate solutions have to be integrated with biodiversity and water and other so-called nature-based solutions to create a more complete solution framework. Also, en environmental justice plays into that. As much as I'd like to talk about climate tech, and we tend to think about you know hardware and software that has LEDs on it uh, somewhere, I think a more comprehensive integration with biodiversity preservation, water safety and pres preservation is an, an important element that is increasing Increasing, I think. A second and very different realm that uh, we're really excited to be getting more deeply involved in at EIP is the Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero or, or GFANS, which really has grown from a modest alliance of net zero asset owners into a very interesting and large community of financial players whose theory of change is that through voluntary commitments by financial players who aren't necessarily all asset owners, but are investors like us, that we can not only create faster change in the, the so-called real economy, but we can also encourage and give a tailwind to governments to up their ambition. So as I mentioned, we're working with GFANS to try and create a net zero venture capital alliance within GFANS. It's exciting to be a part of that and it's exciting to see GFANS work. It is a lot of work to make these commitments work and oversee them, expand them and improve them. And that's what we're doing. The third thing that I'll mention just as a, a citizen of the United States is with the advent of the infrastructure bill and now the Inflation Reduction Act and a number of other federal policies, in addition to the 22 states that have net zero commitments, I, I really do feel like the U.S. is back in the game. And I have that feeling as, as I walk around the global community, we're holding our heads a little higher. We still have a lot to do and big responsibility to lead, but we are, I do believe we are back in the game. That's really great news. This concludes this episode of the Quick Takes podcast. We'll put links to Peter Foxbanner and his research and work in the show notes. Thank you for listening and till next time.